0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by
2: advertising outside the UK.
0: This is the BBC.
2: Hello, I'm Helen Mark and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. It is Wonderful, just to stand here for a moment and take in breath loads of fresh air because I'm on the slipway that leads down into the Taw and Torridge estuary, which is a massive water confluence of the River Taw and the Torridge. They meet here and then they rush out to sea. I'm in Appledore on one side of the estuary and I can look over to Bronton, which is barely a mile away on the other side. But further upriver, we've got the big north Devon towns of Biddeford and Barnstaple. As I look out here, although the tide is out and you feel it is a great landscape, what this place really is, is a waterscape. And we're here for this week's Open Country for a very special reason, because this is a waterscape that holds an amazing maritime history. And the writer and walker, Linda Cracknell, and I are going to explore it, but particularly because Linda, although you live in the Perthshire Highlands, you've (laughs) come a long way to be here. This place has maritime family connections for you, and you're very keen to explore them. So what are those connections?
3: Just across the water, as you say, in Braunton was where my grandmother grew up, and she was a Drake. Her brother was a Francis. He was the Francis in every generation. Um, but we're not
2: talking about the... Well, we
3: always like to say that we've come from the (laughs) Sir Francis, but I think probably every Drake says that. Her father, my grandmother's father, was one of many Drakes who were living in Braunton and running sailing ships from there. And they were wrapped up with the Chichesters, the Newcombs, the Huxtables, co-owning boats, marrying each other over generations and generations, it seems to me, a very complex family tree. And they were mainly working around the Bristol Channel with the deliveries of manure or coal or slate. And they owned several different boats. And I, of course, heard a lot of stories from my grandmother and didn't listen properly, because you don't when you're young. And just over the last year, I found myself drawn back here and wanting to find out more and find some gravestones. Explore the maritime history, for this is a place of water and shoreline and river and trade. And quite a lot of them of course were lost at sea. But also it strikes me that the kind of sense of geography was probably quite different to how we picture it now. And you think that I imagine that Bronton and Appledore felt very much like neighbours in those days because there would have been boats plying to and fro all the time. ...marriages between the two places... ...and also that because of travelling by sea... ...they were linked to places far away. And as we stand here, Linda... ...what what are you seeing with your writer's eyes? I write fiction and non-fiction... ...and in both cases... ...it's very intimately connected with a sense of place... ...and this is the kind of place... ...that I would be really interested in... ...even if I didn't have a family connection here... ...because it has this really mysterious thing going on. There's mud, there's water... You look across and you think, is that an island,
2: those great sand dunes and then the town beyond? All that water that's coming in from Dartmoor and Exmoor and the confluence here of of all
3: that water. The tides can be so low that all this mysterious land appears with lots of wrecked ships. And these are the kind of places that really excite me as a writer because they're liminal places where you're not quite in one world or another. It's where a lot of stories come from. So, to me, a very eerie kind of landscape, but very exciting. Now, we're going to start here on the
2: slipway. We're just below the lifeboat station. You can hear some repairs actually going on in the background. and. Mike Gwegan has yeah, joined us. Right, now, yeah. Mike, you're a good person to start with to try and get some of the elements of the maritime history because you've had a long association, one with shipbuilding, mm. but two with the North Devon Maritime no, that's right, Museum. Yeah,
4: yeah, 40 years.
2: Well, that's a lot of time to gather some information for me. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, for me to get uh, from yeah, you.
4: Yeah, I got a good memory for all this nonsense, you know, and it just sort of sticks. And people come around and say, oh, do you know so and so? And I say, oh, yeah, and, and give them a brief bit about what they're asking if I've read it somewhere so I'm quite lucky at that but uh, you certainly got a different way of words than I have when you (laughs) I I mean I've lived here all my life and uh, as far as I'm concerned the tide goes in it comes out and that's the end of it but uh, you forgot to say that this is the second highest rise and fall of the tide in the world. The Bay of Fundy is the other one. It's the highest, Can, you know, Canada. And mm. uh, it's the opposite side of the Atlantic. And I just get the impression it sloshes each way. Mm. That's why it's it got to be a 20-foot rise and fall, if necessary, you know, at times.
2: So it's the shape of the estuary is quite interesting. Do you feel that when you look at the map, Linda? Did somebody suggest it's almost as like the land had torn apart. The, the water could the flow. Coast. Yes, mm. the water could flow in and out. It's got that feel about well, it. Well, uh, yeah,
4: but the water tears it apart, doesn't it? Water will destroy anything in its way. And when the tide is really low, or if there's a ship going out of any size, it'll snake down the river, which is following the deep water channel. That's with echo sounders, a pilot and an engine. It was a different matter with the sailing ship, with no engine. It was local ships, no pilot.
2: So uh, this was a major trading channel?
4: Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Back in the 1700s, it was the second or third largest tobacco importing port in the country. That died away, obviously, once Liverpool and places got set up a bit. And then they started having the big connection with Canada, which was with Prince Edward Island.
2: If we look right out to the end where the sea is breaking, that's the bar?
4: That's right, yes. And a treacherous place, I believe, Mike. It is. It's it's treacherous because it's so wide, but it's very shallow. So that when the tide's in, it looks a lovely wide estuary. But the navigatable channel is quite narrow. So a sailing ship, especially a stranger, would be blown to the north side or the south side and aground before they knew it. Well,
2: Mike, Gwegan, thank you very much. All this talk of the sea and adventure on the water, I feel that now is the time for me and Linda to make
4: our way out towards the bar. Well, it's nice and calm. You'll be all
5: right. <laughs> right, cereal bow trolley, please. All right. Hang on, hang on. Slow, 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 slow. You can pick the
1: handle
2: up. I'm now with the okay. Appledore gig team and they're manoeuvring this long, slender boat out of a car park. Tricky enough when it's full of cars. And now we cross the road towards the water. How long is the boat?
5: It's 32 feet.
2: And how many are going to be in the crew?
5: There's a crew of six and one cox. Is that is you? Me. Yep, I'm Andy, so I don't, I don't row it, I steer it. You'd normally expect to have the... Uh, largest and heaviest person running, wouldn't you, rather than as a cox? We're slightly contrary, like that. You're Steady down. Right, one, two, three. Well done. OK, wait. She'll slide in from there. And take it
2: up there. Amongst the team of six, we have Naomi Cudmore, And you're in the middle, Naomi. I'm in seat five.
1: Some people call it bow stroke because everyone on bow side is following me and everyone on
2: stroke is following Tomo who's sitting just beside me. Now, at this point, before we set sail, what you're all doing is holding the oars upright and they are almost as long as the boat. OK, turn them yeah. to the
5: boat, please. And they weigh
2: about £10.
5: Both sides, blades down when you've got some water, please. Lovely bow side, keep it coming please So
1: I'm actually breaking the rules because we're not usually allowed to talk at this point because we're supposed to listen but I can multitask, I'm a girl
5: (laughs) And stroke side join in please stroke side join in
2: So what suddenly happens is that the whole team works together in pulling these long oars that drag us then across the water out into really the heart of the estuary and our destination in this pilot gig we're hoping might be the bar. I'm not sure how close we'll get because it's quite a low water at this point. So just describe what is around us now on either side, Naomi.
1: Well on the bow side of the boat we're just rowing out past the anchor at Appledore, which is hard to miss because it's huge. And then over there, on Stroke Side, is Instow, where it's always sunny. <laughs> and there's wonderful beaches over there. Quite an age group in the boat today. I'm loving this because I'm the youngest for once in my life. And in the bow you've got Tony who I think is
2: 83. We're going past now the slipway I was on earlier on. We've got
1: lots of teams in our club. Mm -hmm. We're really lucky we've got nearly 100 members I think. So it can be a lifelong experience, this coming out on the pilot gig. it's brilliant. Absolutely. It's my therapy, Mm. so...
2: Yeah, because you're the editor of the Exmoor magazine. That's right. So coming out onto the water for you is a very important personal experience. It's really important,
1: yeah. I mean, sometimes you think, oh, God, I can't put the time in, but if I don't go for a week, I get in a right grump. (laughs) So I know that it's important. And also um, it means I drive over the top of Exmoor in all weathers, which is good for my job because I see things and have time to think when the phone's not ringing. So actually, although there are times in bad weather where it's a chore, mainly it's quite a treat just to get away.
2: What we are doing now would have been done for several hundred years. Gigs were used for everything, from ferrying flowers,
1: coffins, you know, smuggled goods, they were used as lifeboats. So they've got an incredible history, as well as being used for pilotage. Well, it's
2: the history that um, yeah. the pilot gigs raced towards the boats that lay beyond the bar, That's because right. that was their trade. They had to get be the first there, that's and right. therefore get the pilot from the gig on board the trade boat, shall we call it? So usually non-local ships coming
1: in. So the pilots, you're right, they would they would race the gigs out, and only the one that got there first got got the money of the job of piloting the vessel in or indeed out again. But obviously that wasn't a race. But that's where the whole racing thing came from. It wasn't born in Devon, but all around the peninsula of the southwest.
5: It's nice in the summer when we come back this way and we have the brass band to meet us as well, isn't it? Yeah. That's another local, uh, lovely local moment. Because the Appledore Brass Band play on the quay in the summer evenings. Monday nights. And with the wind in this direction, you can hear them as you're coming back in. It's uh, like being welcomed home. Okay, great stuff, folks. Just the length of the car park to go. (laughs) That's
1: how you count the distance. Give give it to us in car parks,
2: cops. (laughs) All right,
5: I I can see where we're going to land. Right, Okay, we're going to come straight up the mud, straight up the beach. So uh, Tony and Claire ship oars, please. And we're just going to slide our way up sideways against this current. Strong on the bows, please. This ease off slightly on stroke side. And easy up both. Keep your blades out, ready to hold water.
2: Thanks very much. That was a real privilege. Thank you.
5: Walk down to the bow.
2: (laughs)
1: Now for the fisherman's lift.
2: My thanks to Naomi Cudmore and the Appledore rowing team. That was such an amazing experience. I'm back on dry land again now and I'm I'm walking... (laughs) through a leaf-strewn graveyard in Bronton, which is on the north side of the estuary. Now, the thing about this place is it is barely a mile across the estuary from Appledore. But to get here, I had to go all the way along the south side, cross over at Barnstable, and then come all the way back up here to Bronton. It's like 16 miles, and it took me at least half an hour. There was so much traffic. I mean, it would be so easy just to nip across on the water and back with Linda Cracknell. Why, why don't they do that?
3: <laughs> I'm sure they must have done in the past. I'm sure there was a ferry, I think, that ran from Crow Point or near Crow Point over to Appledore.
2: And we've come now to the graveyard of St Brunnock's Church. St. Brannock's. And this is part, again, of your seeking your family story and connection of place
3: yes this graveyard which is at the top of the town in Braunton, has my most immediate relatives there are various other graveyards around the town which have Drakes and Chittesters and Newcombs in them but my most immediate relatives are here
2: isn't that an amazing gust of wind did you the, the leaves were whipped up around <laughs> our legs and the, the trees are swaying above our heads yeah. we should seek shelter it's quite striking how in the graveyard there are surried ranks of headstones and the majority of them are very slim stone. They're slightly more ornate, the ones you've stopped at, a little bit of engraving on the top. The lichens are sort of gathering over the wording, but you can still see yes. what.
3: Well, this one here, Robert Drake, was my great-grandfather and his wife, Annie Lock Drake is recorded on it as well. And so she outlived him by quite a long time. He died in his 30s. And then next door, we have, right at the bottom of this one, we have his son, Francis, who died at sea when he was 25 years old. And he was the um, co-owner of a boat called Pirate, which was built in Stromness at the end of the 19th century. And sadly, this Francis... I've read a report that was featured in the newspaper at the time. He was off Great Hangman Hill, which is just around the corner out of the estuary to the north on the Exmoor coast near Coombe Martin, and he was hoisting the mizzen, which is the sail at the back on a catch rig, and he went overboard and he was never found. And one of the things that seemed to have been a problem was that there were so few of them on board. There was only the mate and a boy left on board and I suppose they were limited what they could do and he was supposed to be a good swimmer but they never found him and, and that's marked um, on his and so headstone. That's, that's here so Francis son of the above who was accidentally drowned off Coon Martin July the 5th mm. 1903 aged 25 years mm. and sadly this is a bit of a trend in the gravestones that I found you know there's a lot of around the town, lost at sea.
2: And that is just a reminder that now that we're back on dry land, the precarious nature yes. of taking those gigs out yes. to pilot in the, the, the trade ships
3: yes. and getting over the bar. A dangerous living, and from such a, a sort of inland place, it just seems quite contrary, really. Yeah, because it it's so far
2: lo- up the is, estuary yes. and then up another bit, yes, up a big creek.
3: The, yes, exactly, it's a good mile <laughs> inland, so <laughs> it's curious but it was clearly important and worthwhile. And this is one of many of the boats that they owned, yeah.
2: The sense of this being a very wild and open landscape is is all around us now, for the wind has picked up and it is driving across the open fields here and particularly where I am now because this is a really special part of this landscape. It's known as, and I hope I've got the name right, The Great Field. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm with the Hartnells, John and his son David, and you're both farming, but this part of the farm has an incredible historical story. So how can we start telling that, John?
0: Well, uh, the Great Field, the legend has it, originated with the Saxons. They marked it all out, and it used to be all this strip farming. Years ago, there used to be lots and lots of strip farming over the country, I did hear there was one left at Nottingham, but this is the only one left. It's changed in as much as the strips years ago when it was uh, very, very small farms would be for an acre, half acre or a quarter acre, and they would only own two or three acres, and they would live. Or they'd make one do a bit of an odd job in, you know, but uh, things have changed now. A lot of the lands now, for instance, this one outside, is 23 acres but they varyers as food still, about an acre or three parts an acre. Mm. So uh, it has had to move with the times and get bigger, you know. There's plots, there's strips.
2: But they're still evident on maps, and they're oh, still, yes. in some places, evident on the land. Oh, yes.
0: It, all so, these lands are parted, what they call a launchard. And that's a strip of grass It's about a foot wide, and it'd be about a foot high. And they're sacred. You mustn't run your plough, and you mustn't plough them up out-ocean <laughs> there, you know, you, you've got to make sure you leave those launchers, that's your boundary, to the next man.
2: So there'll be ridges at the yeah. side of every strip. strip
0: yes. Every strip, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah.
2: Now just to remind ourselves again that we are so close to a maritime environment, aren't we? Because just beyond the great field we have Bronton Burrows, that huge yeah. stretch of mountainous sand dunes, yeah. and then The estuary is over towards, past Bronton there. Yeah, it comes
0: in round the end of the boroughs, the estuary does. Mm -hmm. Comes right into the Torn Torridge estuary, then right up into Barnsville, then up to Vellator in Bronton.
6: It comes up the pill, so the sailing boats used to come right into Broughton. So it's not a port now, but it was a port yeah. 100 years ago. So
2: Yes, and, you know, Linda Cracknell is, is with us on this sort of journey around this estuarine landscape, yeah. and you had these family connections, Linda, of farmers and...
3: Sea captains. Yes, I think they called themselves sea captains. I don't think there was any ticket that they had, but <laughs> they were certainly some of the owners of the the boats at Velator.
6: Farming and sailing was all part of the same thing. One son would be a sailor, another son would be a farmer, and some would do both. And you fishermen know. as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They bring the lime across from Wales to then on the land on the fields around here and it's all interlinked
2: but how do people like yourself linda know that it's private land because it's just wide and open
6: i think where you enter the paths are quite well marked and there are tracks that go across it Standard so you...
0: footpaths yeah as well no but across. you can
6: see the tracks quite easy and there are quite a lot of tracks
0: around each bound of strips there is a track that yeah. you can get to it so yeah,
2: you're no. not stepping on other people's land oh, no, when you're right. trying to get to your no piece. no, that's, no right. that's
0: right they all got their access on the yeah, tracks right. <laughs> yeah
3: and the <laughs> southwest coast path comes around the edge of the 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 great field and then was going around Aussie Island, but I think at the moment there's a breach in the wall.
0: The council have fenced off and rerouted it a bit. That goes down by the toll road down to the crow point.
2: So it's been flooded quite recently and it's got a history of flooding.
0: There's a flood door on there that kept the tide out. Well, that got in disrepair and it gradually got worse and worse and it's just breached right through the bank now and it's in dire straits that they are actually out trying to do something about it now. Yeah. So I wish them well, I wish them well, but it's a big job.
2: So you know all about this because you are a marsh inspector of the marshlands that in a way are the boundary between the land and the estuary.
0: Yes, yes, um, for me since then I'm a marsh inspector, chairman of the marsh inspector... Like most organisations, and once you get this job, you got it for life. Nearly, you know. I've been doing it for many, many years. I'd like to see somebody younger, blood coming along. I mean, we got another Mars inspector, but he's brilliant. He's 90 next birthday, <laughs> but he's still farming it's still going strong.
2: So, is David going to be your successor as a marsh inspector?
4: <laughs> or are you well, <laughs> following in your dad's footsteps?
6: Well, he does a very good job, and I don't want too much nepotism and sort of too many <laughs> one family all taking over in one particular area. So, I'll leave him to it, unless you know, oh. so we get on with the farming, and I let him get on with the uh, jobs on the marshes. <laughs>
2: in this place I'm just thinking about what we've experienced we're standing here on the northern side of the Taw -Taw Torridge estuary and I can look across it's barely half a mile Mm. to the slipway where we were Mm -hmm. in Appledore and here we are now on, on this side at Crow Point having been on the estuary having been in ancient farming landscapes and we're back out now with the sand racing across the dunes here caught up in the wind what a place So much to see and do and
3: feel, for me. And for me. (laughs) It almost looks like we could walk across there, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it? Yeah. Of course, one of the things I find fascinating is how the landscape of the estuary changes between high tide and low tide. It's an utterly different place. The appearance up out of the sand of these old wrecks of boats. Their hulls still visible, dotted about the place, a reminder of the treacherousness of such a place. And that's within the bar.
2: Yes, Now, as we've been travelling, you've been talking to people and collecting ideas and memories. You've got those, but as you're here now and then thinking ahead, what are your thoughts about this part of North Devon?
3: Well, I'm very interested in responding to it in some sort of creative way and I don't yet know exactly what that'll be, but it's likely to include words, as I'm a writer. (laughs) I'm finding connections to a place that has something to do with family roots... But also creating my own sense of a memory. I'm very taken by the sense of historical continuity, both through the family, but much further back, with the great field being farmed in essentially the same way for so many centuries. To and the place in they were.
2: a landscape which is constantly changing because the influence yes. of tide
3: yes. and water yes. from
2: the land and from the sea and this confluence all mm. comes together mm. here,
3: where we are now. You know, looking out on the estuary where we are 150 years ago, probably would have been full of sail. And now it's not even a little ferry going across to and fro. It seems sad in some ways that we're not as much people of the sea as as we used to be.
2: I think, though, to be realistic, it's time that we got out of the wind and the rain and the blowing sand <laughs> and the tide. <laughs> come
3: on, come on, let's go. Let's go. <laughs>
2: It is wonderful just to stand here for a moment and take in breath loads of fresh air because I'm on the slipway that leads down into the Taw and Torridge estuary, which is a massive water confluence of the River Taw and the Torridge. They meet here and then they rush out to sea. I'm in Appledore on one side of the estuary and I can look over to Bronton, which is barely a mile away on the other side. But further upriver, we've got the big north Devon towns of Biddeford and Barnstaple. As I look out here, although the tide is out and you feel it is a great landscape, what this place really is, is a waterscape. And we're here for this week's Open Country for a very special reason, because this is a waterscape that holds an amazing maritime history. And the writer and walker, Linda Cracknell, and I are going to explore it, but particularly because Linda, although you live in the Perthshire Highlands, you've come (laughs) a long way to be here. This place has maritime family connections for you, and you're very keen to explore them. So what are those connections?
3: Just across the water, as you say, in Brounton was where my grandmother grew up. And she was a Drake. Her brother was a Francis. It was a Francis in every generation. Um, but we're not
2: talking about the... Francis Drake well, always, we
3: always like to say that we've come from the Sir Francis but I think probably every Drake says that and um, her father my grandmother's father was one of many Drakes who were living in Braunton and running sailing ships from there and they were wrapped up with the Chichesters, the Newcombs the Huxtables co-owning boats marrying each other Over generations and generations, it seems to me, a very complex family tree. And they were mainly working around the Bristol Channel with deliveries of manure or coal or slate. And they owned several different boats. And I, of course, heard a lot of stories from my grandmother and didn't listen properly, because you don't when you're young. And just over the last year, I found myself drawn back here and wanting to find out more and find some gravestones. Explore the maritime history, for this is a place of water and shoreline and river and trade. And quite a lot of them, of course, were lost at sea. But also it strikes me that the kind of sense of geography was probably quite different to how we picture it now. And you think that, I imagine, that Bronton and Appledore felt very much like neighbours in those days because there would have been boats plying to and fro all the time marriages between the two places and also that because of traveling by sea they were linked to places far away and as we stand here linda what what are you seeing with your writer's eyes i write fiction and non-fiction and in both cases it's very intimately connected with a sense of place and this is the kind of place that i would be really interested in even if i didn't have a family connection here because it has this really mysterious thing going on There's mud, there's water. You look across and you think, is that an island?
2: Those great sand dunes and then the town beyond. All that water that's coming in from Dartmoor and Exmoor and the confluence here of of all
3: that water. The tides can be so low that all this mysterious land appears with lots of wrecked ships. And these are the kind of places that really excite me as a writer because they're liminal places where you're not quite in one world or another it's where a lot of stories come from so to me a very eerie kind of landscape but very exciting Now we're going to start here on the slipway
2: we're just below the lifeboat station you can hear some repairs actually going on in the background and Mike Gwegan has yeah, joined us. Right, now, yeah. Mike, you're a good person to start with to try and get some of the elements of the maritime history because you've had a long association, one, with shipbuilding, mm. but two, with the North Devon Maritime Museum. Yeah, that's right, Museum. Yeah,
4: yeah, 40 years.
2: Well, that's a lot of time to gather some information for me. Yeah, it <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, for me to get uh, from yeah, you.
4: Yeah, yeah. i got a good memory for all this nonsense, you know, and it just sort of sticks and people come along and say, oh, do you know so-and-so? And I say, oh, yeah, give them a brief bit about what they're asking if I've read it somewhere so I'm quite lucky at that but uh, you've certainly got a different way of words than I have when you <laughs> I, I mean I've lived here all my life and uh, as far as I'm concerned the tide goes in it comes out and that's the end of it but uh, you forgot to say that this is the second highest rise and fall of the tide in the world The Bay of Fundy is the other one. It's the highest, you know, Canada. Mm. uh, And it's the opposite side of the Atlantic. I just get the impression it sloshes each way. Mm. That's why it's got to be a 20-foot rise and fall, if necessary, you know, at times.
2: So... It's the shape of the estuary is quite interesting. Do you feel that when you look at the map, Linda? Did somebody suggests it's almost as like the land had torn apart. A the water could the flow. Coast. Yes, mm. the water could flow in and out. It's got that feel about well, it. Well, uh, yeah,
4: but the water tears it apart, doesn't it? Water will destroy anything in its way. And when the tide is really low, or if it's a ship going out of any size, it'll snake down the river, which is following the deep water channel. That's with echo sounders, a pilot, and an engine. It was a different matter with the sailing ship, with no engine. It was just local ships, no pilot.
2: So uh, this was a major trading channel?
4: Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, back in the 1700s, it was the second or third largest tobacco importing mm-hmm. port in the country. That died away, obviously, once Liverpool and places got set up a bit. And then they started having the big connection with Canada, which was with... Prince Edward Island.
2: If we look right out to the end where the sea is breaking, that's the bar?
4: That's right, yes. And a treacherous place, I believe, Mike. It is. It's it's treacherous because it's so wide, but it's very shallow. So that when the tide's in, it looks a lovely wide estuary. But the navigatable channel is quite narrow. So a sailing ship, especially a stranger, would be blown to the north side or the south side and a ground before they knew it. Well,
2: Mike, Gwegan, thank you very much. All this talk of the sea and adventure on the water, I feel that now is the time for me and Linda to make our
4: way out towards the bar. Well, it's nice and calm. You'll be all right.
5: (laughs) Right, Right, cereal, bow trolley, please.
1: Right. Hang on, hang on. Slow, 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 so she can
6: pick the handle up.
2: I'm now with the Appledore gig team and they're manoeuvring this long, slender boat out of a car park. Tricky enough when it's full of cars. And now we cross the road towards the water. How long is the boat?
5: It's 32 feet.
2: And how many are going to be in the crew?
5: There's a crew of six and one cox. Is which that is you? Me. Yep, I'm Andy, so I don't, I don't row it, I steer it. You'd normally expect yeah. to have the... Uh, Largest and heaviest person running, wouldn't it, rather than as a cox. They're slightly contrary like that. Ready down. Right, one, two, three. Well done. Okay. wait. She'll slide in from there.
6: And take it up there.
2: To Amongst the team of six, we have Naomi Cudmore, and you're in the middle, Naomi. I'm in seat five. Some
1: people call it bow stroke because everyone on bow side is following me and everyone on stroke
2: is following Tomo, who's sitting just beside me. Now, at this point, before we set sail, what you're all doing is holding the oars upright and they are almost as long as the boat. Okay, turn it on to
5: the boat, please. And they weigh about £10. Both sides, blades down when you've got some water, please. That's a lovely bow side. Keep it coming, please. So
1: I'm actually breaking the rules because we're not usually allowed to talk at this point because we're supposed to listen, but I can multitask. I'm a girl.
5: (laughs) And stroke side, join in, please. Stroke side, join in.
2: So what suddenly happens is that the whole team works together in pulling these long oars that drag us then across the water out into really the heart of the estuary and our destination in this pilot gig we're hoping might be the bar. I'm not sure how close we'll get because it's quite a low water at this point. So just describe what is around us now on either side, Naomi.
1: But on the bow side of the boat, we're just rowing out past the anchor at Appledore, which is hard to miss because it's huge. And then over there on stroke side is Instow where it's always sunny <laughs> and there's wonderful beaches over there. Quite an age group in the boat today. I'm loving this because I'm the youngest for once in my life. And in the bow, you've got Tony, who I think is 83.
2: We're going past now the slipway I was on earlier on. We've
1: got lots of teams in our club. Mm -hmm. We're really lucky. We've got nearly 100 members, I think. So it can be a lifelong experience, this coming out on on the pilot gig. it's brilliant. Absolutely. It's my therapy, Mm. so...
2: Yeah, because you're the editor of the Exmoor magazine. That's right. So coming out onto the water for you is a very important personal experience. It's really important, yeah.
1: I mean, sometimes you think, oh, God, I can't put the time in, but if I don't go for a week, I get in a right grump. (laughs) So I know that it's important. And also um, it means I drive over the top of Exmoor in all weathers, which is good for my job because I see things and have time to think when the phone's not ringing. So actually, although there are times in bad weather where it's a chore, mainly it's quite a treat just to get away.
2: What we are doing now would have been done for several hundred years. Gigs were used for everything, from ferrying flowers,
1: coffins, you know, smuggled goods, they were used as lifeboats. So they've got an incredible history, as well as being used for pilotage. Well, it's the
2: history that um, yeah. the pilot gigs raced towards the boats that lay beyond the bar That's because right. that was their trade they had to get be the first there that's and right. therefore get the pilot from the gig on board the trade boat, shall we call it.
1: So usually non-local ships coming in. So the pilots, you're right, they would they would race the gigs out and only the one that got there first got the, got the money of the job of piloting the vessel in, or indeed out again. But obviously that wasn't a race, but that's where the whole racing thing came from. It wasn't born... In Devon, but all around the peninsula of the southwest.
5: It's nice in the summer when we come back this way and we have the brass band to meet us as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's another local, uh, lovely local moment. Because the Appledore brass band play on the quay in the summer evenings. Sunday nights. And with the wind in this direction, you can hear them as you're coming back in. It's uh, like being welcomed home. OK, great stuff, folks. Just the length of the car park to go. That's <laughs> how
1: so you count the distance. Give, give it to us in car parks,
2: cops. All right,
5: <laughs> oh, I, I can see where we're going to land. Right. OK, we're going to come straight up the mud, straight up the beach. So uh, Tony and Claire ship oars, please. And we're just going to slide our way up sideways against this current. Strong on the bows, please. this ease off slightly on stroke side. And easy up both. Keep your blades out, ready to hold water.
2: Thanks very much.
5: Right. If you like to
2: clear, that the... was a real privilege. Thank you.
5: Walk down to the bow. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. Now for the fisherman's lift. <laughs> My thanks to Naomi Cudmore and the Appledore Rowing Team. That was such an amazing experience. I'm back on dry land again now, and I'm I'm walking. <laughs> through a leaf-strewn graveyard in Bronton, which is on the north side of the estuary. Now, the thing about this place is it is barely a mile across the estuary from Appledore. But to get here, I had to go all the way along the south side, cross over at Barnstable, and then come all the way back up here to Bronton. It was like 16 miles, and it took me at least half an hour. There was so much traffic. I mean, it would be so easy just to nip across on the water and back with Linda Cracknell. Why, why don't they do that?
3: <laughs> I'm sure they must have done in the past. I'm sure there was a ferry, I think, that ran from Crow Point or near Crow Point over to Appledore.
2: And we've come now to the graveyard of St Brannock's Church. St Brannock's Church. And this is part, again, of your seeking your family story and connection of place.
3: Yes, this graveyard, which is at the top of the town in Braunton, has my most immediate relatives. There are various other graveyards around the town which have Drakes and chichesters and Newcombs in them, but my most immediate relatives are here.
2: Isn't that an amazing gust of wind? Yes. Did you, the, the leaves were whipped up round <laughs> our legs and the, the trees are swaying above our heads. Yeah. We should seek shelter quite striking how in the graveyard there are surried ranks of headstones and the majority of them are very slim stone they're slightly more ornate the ones you've stopped at a little bit of engraving on the top the lichens are sort of gathering over the wording but you can still see what.
3: well this one here Robert Drake was my great grandfather and his wife Annie Lock Drake is recorded on it as well And so she outlived him by quite a long time. He died in his 30s. And then next door, we have, right at the bottom of this one, we have his son, Francis, who died at sea when he was 25 years old. And he was the um, co-owner of a boat called Pirate, which was built in Stromness at the end of the 19th century. And sadly, this Francis... I've read a report that was featured in the newspaper at the time. He was off Great Hangman Hill, which is just around the corner out of the estuary to the north on the Exmoor coast near Coombe Martin, and he was hoisting the mizzen, which is the sail at the back on a catch rig, and he went overboard and he was never found. And one of the things that seemed to have been a problem was that there were so few of them on board. There was only the mate and a boy left on board and I suppose they were limited what they could do and he was supposed to be a good swimmer but they never found him and, and that's marked um, on his and so that's, that's here so Francis son of the above who was accidentally drowned off Coon Martin July the 5th mm. 1903 aged 25 years mm. and sadly this is a bit of a trend in the gravestones that I found you know there's a lot around the town, lost at sea.
2: And that is just a reminder that now that we're back on dry land, the precarious yes, nature yes. of taking those gigs out yes. to pilot in the, the, the trade ships
3: yeah. and getting over the bar. A dangerous living, and from such a, a sort of inland place, it just seems quite contrary, really. Yeah, but because it it's so far
2: lo- up the is, estuary yes. and then up another bit, yes, up a big creek. The,
3: yes, exactly, a <laughs> good mile inland, <laughs> mm, so mm. it's curious... But it was clearly important and worthwhile. And this is one of many of the boats that they owned. Yeah.
2: The sense of this being a very wild and open landscape is, is all around us now, for the wind has picked up. And it is driving across the open fields here, and particularly where I am now, because this is a really special part of this landscape. It's known as, and I hope I've got the name right, The Great Field. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: And I'm with the Hartnells, John and his son David, and you're both farming, but this part of the farm has an incredible historical story. So how can we start telling that, John?
0: Well, uh, the Great Field, the legend has it, originated with the Saxons. They marked it all out, and it used to be all this strip farming. Years ago, there used to be lots and lots of strip farming over the country, I did hear there was one left at Nottingham, but this is the only one left. It's changed in as much as the strips years ago when it was uh, very, very small farms would be for an acre, half acre or a quarter acre, and they would only own two or three acres, and they would live. they make one and do a bit of an odd job in, you know, but uh, things have changed now. A lot of the lands now, for instance, this one outside, is 23 acres but they vary as still, about an acre or three parts an acre. Mm. So uh, it has had to move with the times and get bigger, you know. There's plots, there's strips.
2: But this, they're still evident on maps, and they're oh, still, yes. in some places, evident on the land. Oh,
0: yes. It, all so... these lands are parted by what they call a launchard. And that's a strip of grass It's about a foot wide, and it'd be about a foot high. And they're sacred. You mustn't, when you're ploughing, you mustn't plough them up. Out of we only, you know, you you've got to make sure you leave those out That's your boundary to the next man.
2: So there'll be ridges at yeah. the side of every strip. Yes. Strip
0: every strip. Yeah. Yeah, that. that's right. Yeah.
2: Now, just to remind ourselves again that we are so close to a maritime environment, aren't we? Because just beyond the Great Field, we have Bronton Burrows, that huge yeah. stretch of mountainous sand dunes, yeah. and then. The estuary is over towards, yeah, we'll past to, Bronton there. Yeah,
0: yes. it comes in round the end of the boroughs, the estuary does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. comes right into the Torn Torridge yeah. estuary and then right up into Barnsville, then up to Vellator in Bronton.
6: It comes up the pill so the sailing boats used to come right into braunton so it's not a port now but it was a port 100 years ago so yes
2: and you know linda cracknell is is with us on this sort of journey around this estuarine landscape and you had these family connections linda of farmers and
3: sea captains Yes, I think they called themselves sea captains. I don't think there was any ticket that they had, but they were certainly some of the owners of the the boats at Velator.
6: Farming and sailing was all part of the same thing. One son would be a sailor, another son would be a farmer, and some would do both. And fishermen as well. Yeah, that's right, that's right. They bring the lime across from Wales to then put on the land on the fields around here, and it's all interlinked.
2: But how do people like yourself, Linda, know that it's private land because it's just wide and open?
6: I think where you enter, the paths are quite well marked, and there are tracks that go across it. Standard footpaths. Yeah, as well no, but across. you can see the tracks quite easy and there are quite a lot of tracks.
0: Around each band of strips, there is a track yeah. that you can get to it. So yeah,
2: you're no. not stepping on other people's land oh, no, when you're well. trying to get to your no. place? No, that's no, right.
0: right. That's they all right. got their access on the yeah, tracks. <laughs> yeah, and
3: the Southwest Coast Path comes around the edge of the, the yeah. Great Field, yeah. and then yes. yeah. was going around Mossy yeah. Island, but I think at the moment there's a breach in the wall.
0: The council have fenced off and rerouted it a bit. That goes down by the toll road down to the Crow Point.
2: So it's been flooded quite recently, and it's got a history of flooding.
0: There's a flood door on there that kept the tide out. Well, that got in disrepair and. it gradually got worse and worse and it's just breached right through the bank now and it's in dire straits that they are actually out trying to do something about it now yeah. so I wish them well, I wish them well but it's a big job
2: So you know all about this because you are a marsh inspector of the marshlands that in a way are the boundary between the work land and the estuary
0: Yes, yes um, for me since then I'm a marsh inspector chairman of the marsh inspector like most organisations, and once you get this job, you got it for life. Nearly, <laughs> you know. I've been doing it for many, many years. I'd like to see somebody younger, blood coming along. I mean, we got another marsh inspector, but he's brilliant. He's 90 next birthday, <laughs> but he's still farming, it's still going strong.
2: So, is David going to be your successor as a marsh inspector?
6: <laughs> are you
4: well, <laughs> following in your dad's footsteps?
6: Well, he does a very good job, and I don't want too much nepotism and sort of too many, <laughs> one family all taking over in one particular area. So, I, I'll leave him to it. You know, so, hope. he gets on with the farming, and I let him get on with the uh, jobs on the marshes. <laughs>
2: in this place. I'm just thinking about what we've experienced. We're standing here on the northern side of the Taw estuary and I can look across it's barely half a mile mm-hmm. to the slipway where we were mm-hmm. in Appledore and here we are now on, on this side at Crow Point having been on the estuary, having been in ancient farming landscapes and we're back out now with the sand racing across the dunes here caught up in the wind what a place. So much to see and do and
3: feel, for me. And for me. <laughs> it almost looks like we could walk across there, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah. Of course, one of the things I find fascinating is how the landscape of the estuary changes between high tide and low tide. It's an utterly different place. The appearance up out of the sand of these old wrecks of boats. Their hulls still hulls, visible, yes. dotted about the place, yes. a reminder of the treacherousness yes. of such a place. And that's within the bar.
2: Yes, Now, as we've been travelling, you've been talking to people and collecting ideas and memories. You've got those, but as you're here now and then thinking ahead, what are your thoughts about this part of North Devon?
3: Well, I'm very interested in responding to it in some sort of creative way and I don't yet know exactly what that'll be, but it's likely to include words, as I'm a writer. (laughs) I'm finding connections to a place that has something to do with family roots... But also creating my own sense of a memory. I'm very taken by the sense of historical continuity, both through the family, but much further back, with the great field being farmed in essentially the same way for so many centuries. To and the place in they were.
2: a landscape which is constantly changing because the influence yes. of tide yes. and water yes. from the land and from the sea and this confluence all mm. comes together mm. here
3: where we are now. You know, looking out on the estuary where we are 150 years ago, probably would have been full of sail. And now it's not even a little ferry going across to and fro. It seems sad in some ways that we're not as much people of the sea as, as we used to be.
2: I think, though, to be realistic, it's time that we got out of the wind and the rain and the blowing sand <laughs> and the tide. <laughs>
3: come on, come on, let's go. Let's go. <laughs>